And I said, this is my idea. I want to have a two-day music festival. And they said, good, yeah, we, we, we would love to do that. I said, well, there's another catch. All of the bands are going to be from Philly. And there was kind of some silence. It was like, do we have enough bands to do that? You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today we're sitting down with Greg Seltzer. Greg is a lawyer and partner at Ballard Spar, and his specialty is mergers and acquisitions, or M&A. Over the past decade, he's been the architect behind some of Philly's biggest deals. On a deal like that, I, I'm in just straight soldier mode. In this episode, you'll hear how Greg was initially an accountant, but even his dream job left him bored. That is, until he was inspired to pursue law. And then I said, who's that guy on the phone? And they're like, oh, that's the lead M&A lawyer. And I was like, huh, maybe that's what I want to do. But he doesn't just do M&A. He's also extremely passionate about music and has even published two books analyzing its ties to current events. I got a lot going on in my head. And when I listen to music, I can kind of just focus on the music. And it became something that I analyzed. That, along with his love for Philly, led him to create Philly Music Fest. Like many festivals, it happens annually and showcases dozens of artists. But this festival exclusively features Philly-based musicians. I said, yeah, we're going to have 24 Philly bands. I mean, I go and see them. We have them. we just got to put them on stage together and kind of promote them. The story of Greg Seltzer and Philly Music Fest now on Philly Who. You know, some people say, how do you get this done? It's like, well, all this Game of Thrones stuff you're talking about, I don't even know what, what channel that's on, <laughs> number one. So odds are you probably haven't heard the name Greg Seltzer while going about day-to-day life in Philly. He keeps a really low profile and overall is a pretty reserved guy. And you would never guess it if you walked past him on the street that he's a top lawyer at one of Philly's most prestigious law firms and that he's represented many of the businesses and organizations that touch everyday Philly life. His crown achievement so far is successfully negotiating a behemoth $2 billion deal for the city of Philadelphia to sell PGW, Philly Gas Works, although city council never got around to voting on it. And he works with many organizations that you've probably heard of, especially if you listen to the show, including Guru Technologies, Cook and Solo, Richard Vague and Gabriel Investments, Alan Dom, The Phillies, Comcast, World Cafe Live, DeBruno Brothers, Rec Philly, Philly Startup Leaders, Global Village, the list really does go on. And you could tell how much he loves making businesses successful by looking at his resume, where you'll notice three professional degrees, a bachelor's degree in accounting, an MBA, and a law degree. All this love of business dates back to his upbringing, where he grew up admiring his father. He was a salesman, you know, traveling salesman, rode around with sporting goods in his in his car, soccer balls, baseball gloves. At one point in the mid-80s, he got a job, and you're a little younger, Kevin, than I am, but there was a company called Starter, Starter Sportswear. And every kid back in the 80s had a starter jacket, a starter hat, starter parka. So we had a garage full of this starter gear. And, you know, if I have, like, one memory from my childhood, it's just a garage full of gear, which is interesting because my grandfather was a salesman, my dad was a salesman. The one piece of advice I got is I'm not to be a salesman when I, when I grow up. I'm going to do something yeah. professional. You know, I worked my ass off as a lawyer in law school. I was an accountant and then a lawyer. And then I made partner at Ballard. And my dad said, congrats. And 
I said, yeah, the problem is now I'm a salesman. <laughs> <laughs> so you found your way there anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Everyone does, I think. Right. After he graduated Huntington Valley High School as the captain and leading scorer of the basketball team, Greg followed his dream of going to Penn State. There, he had to decide what, other than sales, of course, he wanted to do with his life. I always wanted to do something in business. Finance never really made sense to me what that was, at least at the undergrad level, whereas accounting seemed, as I said, foundational and something that I could build on. And so you in, you enjoyed sort of looking at the books and doing the math? like. Yeah, it worked for me. I mean, my a very type A detailed personality. Um, accounting is, it's very simple in terms of it works or it doesn't work. Now, when you get into upper levels of accounting, there's there's an art to it, but at least at the beginning levels. You know, with something like that, it's so tedious that if you're going to do it, you really got to be into it, right? <laughs> like Definitely. The math concepts and, and just, you know, staring at numbers all the time, you got to be, you got to be down for that. So. Yeah. It didn't hurt that I met my now wife first semester of my college career, and she was laser focused on accounting. And I would, was already predisposed to kind of think I was going to do accounting, but then we kind of just both went through that accounting process together. She ended up getting a job at Arthur Anderson, and I got a job at Ernst & Young after Penn State. And so when you got that job, yeah. you must have been excited. It was a huge job. I interned junior year, and then the senior year, you got a job at Ernst & Young, one of the best accounting firms in the country. And yeah, that was awesome. It was best case scenario. Pretty much the goal, right? <laughs> it was the goal, yeah. So you get the job, you're, you're working on, right, audit and tax. Did it live up to the hype? At, at first it did, but it really, I didn't love the profession of auditing. It, it's pretty brutal. I had to stick it out, had to, had to get the two years in to get the CPA. So once I did that and passed the CPA exam, then I definitely started having a bit of a flight mentality and like, where is this going to go? Is it going to be at a company? Is it going to be another opportunity? And, you know, I distinctly remember working on a big project at Ernst & Young. We were working on this for months, months and months. And we were on this call at the end of the deal. You know, we were huddled around a conference table and there was voices on the speakerphone. And I remember the voice on the speakerphone said something to the effect of, you know, after an hour's worth of the call. Okay. E&Y, anything. And the partner that I was working for, a super cool guy, he just jumps up, you know, unmutes the phone and says, uh, nothing from nothing from Ernst & Young, thank you, and, and unmutes it. And I'm just like, we just worked for like two months. And then they're like, okay, thanks. And then the guy on the phone continues to talk about all these like cool issues and these, these interesting concepts and going through all these other people. And then the, the call ends and the, the deal's closed and, you know, everyone just kind of files out of the room. And I'm like, that's what we do? And then I said, who's that guy on the phone? And they're like, oh, that's the lead M&A lawyer. And I was like, huh, maybe that's what I want to do. You eventually did decide to go to law school. Was that a tough decision? Like It was because the Ernst & Young job was great. So I, in my endless conservatism, went to law school at night. Um, so I didn't give up the Ernst & Young job. I stayed working at Ernst & Young, switched into tax because you couldn't really go to law school and be in audit. So I switched to tax and I worked five days a week and I went to law school four days a week at night, studied on the weekends, took off to watch Eagles games on Sundays in the fall. And that was that was my life for law school. So you were first exposed to the M&A lawyer in that call. Mm -hmm. As you explored it more, what is it that draws you to that, to M&A? What excites you about that? It's just the energy of the deal. Um, I am not one of these lawyers that you talk to on the weekends and that hates, laments being a lawyer. I'm, I'm not that guy. Um, I do deals and I just like being in the thick of working with two clients, putting 
interests together, sure, there's leverage and there's some contention at times, but working towards a, a common goal, it's, it's actually everything that people don't think lawyers do um, is what M&A lawyers do. You know, both parties, you have a, a willing seller and a willing buyer, and then you, you work with them to attack risks that they're trying to protect against. And you work for months and months, a lot of times, to kind of close the transaction. And when you close the transaction, a lot of times you have to keep these parties together. They got to like each other after. I love kind of when we work with sellers, it's often a psychological exercise. They're selling a business that they've been running for a long time and built. So is that something that your your education and background teaches you when you get into M&A, like the emotional intelligence and, and just, you know, human behavior type? Or is that something you kind of have to learn on the fly? I think you learn on the fly. I think you probably either have it in you or, or you don't. I worked for some tremendous partners at Ballard. I would write down notes a little bit about partners and the way they reacted. I always liked the partners that listened more than talked. That's why this podcast is a little different for me, but I'll try not to ask you questions. I'll try to talk as much as I can. <laughs> so as you say, as you were growing up at Ballard, you became partner in 13, right? July of 13. Along that way, what would you say are the key like cases or moments that are the real win moments that you were like, oh, I'm where I'm supposed to be? You know, probably the two most dramatic stories of my Ballard career growing up was um, one's, a, one's a short vignette and the other could be another podcast. The vignette is, um, if you're familiar with Michael Milken, who was um, portrayed by Michael Douglas in Wall Street. So he's kind of a corporate raider. He's a New York classic takeover artist. And I was representing a company in Philly called Nobel Learning. Really good company, educational, really really kind of core good people. And um, I'll never forget, it was, a, it was a Friday afternoon and the partner that I was working on came in my office and said, we have a situation, uh, Michael Milken is trying to take over our client. And I was like, I'm in, what, what do we need to do? So what he was doing, he was buying up shares on the open market and it's called a creeping, creeping takeover, a creeping tender offer. And you know, he basically ran out of time, which is, happens, it's Friday when the market closes. But on Monday when that market opened, he was going to buy up the remaining shares and, and take this company over, get control of the board. We were tasked with trying to figure out how to thwart this takeover by Michael Milken. And it was just kind of a cool thing. So we ended up, you know, not to get too much in the weeds, but we worked all weekend. It was the first time as an associate I slept at the office. Um, we have, you know, bedrooms and stuff at Ballard. It's not talked about <laughs> until now, I guess. But And we basically put what's called a poison pill in place so that if, if anybody tried to buy more shares, it would blow it up. And it basically thwarted Milken's efforts. So we put that in place over the weekend and then market opened on Monday and he wasn't able to buy any more shares. And it essentially just forces the parties to talk and come to an amicable settlement instead of a, a takeover. Right. So that was really cool. That reminds me of like watching like Game of Thrones or like one of those medieval types of shows or movies where like there were still unwritten rules around battle and it's like oh they're gonna attack us at dawn yeah. so we have until then to figure this exactly. out instead of just like at any moment you know it could happen right <laughs> like, it, it was intense i mean it was an intense weekend the second story is is kind of the opposite of that it was something that i lived with for a long time which i was i was hired by mayor nutter in the city of philadelphia to sell philadelphia gas works which was a project that was very important to me i mean i've grown up in philadelphia after huntington valley i lived in the city and Old City and then Fairmount for a long time. And I was just passionate about the business case for selling PGW and alleviating the, the pension pension problem that the city had. And it was a big, big transaction for me to run. 
And you were put in charge of this. Yeah, I was running the transaction as, as a very young lawyer. I actually made partner during that transaction. And I lived with that transaction for probably 18 months. You know, was it catastrophic? Was it a loss? Some people say, was, was that your biggest loss? Yeah. And it was a huge loss, but it was also a, a huge win. The pinnacle of my success would have been getting an agreement, getting a merger agreement signed, an acquisition agreement signed to sell PGW to a big buyer. And we did that. We, we negotiated the transaction and we entered into a signed agreement with the buyer to purchase PGW for just about $2 billion, which would have just been incredibly incredibly important for this city. How did you find out that that wasn't going to happen? We knew even before we signed it that the political atmosphere might be against it. You know, we were told all along that, you know, we would have a fair shake in city council and, you know, they're going to vote on it. And if they don't vote for it, then they don't vote for it. But um, it would be a democratic process. And, you know, I, I wasn't connected to the government relations part of the transaction. I was tasked with getting those signatures on that merger agreement, which we did. But, you know, as the this, this story ends up, I mean, it never even went up for a vote. I mean, it never hit the democratic process. They just squashed it by never introducing the... But if that's a threat, then, I mean, you spent how long working on this? And it may not even happen. Like, you knew the whole time that there was a, there was a chance that it would not even be voted on. I don't know. I feel like if I knew that this might not even happen, that would, like, sort of damage my drive to actually do it. On a deal like that, I, I'm in just straight soldier mode. I'm representing my client, which was the mayor of the city of Philadelphia, and I'm tasked with getting that deal done. And even if it's there's a chance that it might not go through, which is out of my control, I'm going to get that deal done. Yeah. When you read about that, it's, you know, in the media, it's talked about as kind of like a failure. Yet, in your email to me, that was one of the first things you mentioned. And actually, if you look at your profile on the Ballard Spar site, it's the first thing that's mentioned. It's, you know, negotiated this deal. So is there any complication in when you talk about this and almost sort of, you know, show like, hey, I did this, but it failed? Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I actually, in my um, office, I have a mostly music memorabilia, but I do have a framed letter about the PGW deal. It's the letter from the buyer to Mayor Nutter terminating the deal. It is the prime exhibit of failure of that transaction. But I just like to look at that because it just reminds me that there are things out of my control. I view it as very much a success and a failure. There's no part of me that puts the failure kind of out of mind. And, you know, it's a political issue, so there's no right and wrong. But just two months ago, there was an article in the paper, the pension fund in, in Philadelphia is a big drag on our funds. And there was an op-ed piece about what are we going to do with PGW? Has it been that long where yeah. people already forget? And I think they do. <laughs> and they do. We had a really, really solid deal on the table. That makes me feel so sad. <laughs> I guess politics got in the way of something that could have really solved a lot of problems. Yeah, I would like to hear city council just debate it. I mean, we had a number of people in favor of it. We had a number of people against it. I would just like to hear a healthy debate. So while you're doing this, you mentioned how you were young, right? Pretty young to be the partner, right? <laughs> I made partner fairly young. I mean, but I had a background and I had a CPA and I kind of had some work experience. So it was a little more accelerated. In, That's what you attribute in, it to? Just yeah, the, I think so. Okay, gotcha. These days, startup culture celebrates failure. So, you know, having said that you display this, uh, this letter in your office as a reminder of failure, what's your take on that, on the whole startup culture that glorifies failure? I, I've never bought into the glorification of failure in the startups. I see that around. I read those articles, and I, you know, I hear a ton of pitches. 
and that sometimes is, is a lead in the pitch. I try to avoid failure at all costs, but it does happen. It happens a lot, and you got to learn from it. Um, I certainly wouldn't glorify it, but if it's tilted towards this is what I've learned from that experience, then I, then I can buy into it, but you, but you sure as heck better get to something after I failed. Once Greg became a partner at Ballard Spar, he turned his attention towards helping entrepreneurs and early startups. Within the firm, he co-founded BASE, or Ballard Academy for Student Entrepreneurs, as well as Project SING, which stands for Seed, Incubate, Nurture, Grow. Both of these programs aim to give back and support the Philly startup and entrepreneur ecosystem. I've always had a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, um, but I was a bit trapped, if you will. I mean, Ernst & Young's a behemoth. Ballard is a large national law firm. And I, this entrepreneurship angle at Ballard has given me the opportunity to kind of build my own startup. I mean, I really do believe that I'm running a startup alongside a lot of my clients. We've had the practice at Ballard for decades, but my kind of ownership of it nationally and really digging in to how I want to run the practice and how I want to onboard clients and what types of clients to onboard. That's been incredibly kind of breathtaking process. I mean, we're bootstrapping. Bootstrapping is when a business is funded entirely by its owners and its profits. It doesn't take on big lump sums of outside investment. We're bootstrapping ourselves. So when we hear clients bootstrapping, it's, it's been very easy for my team to be like, yeah, we're, we're right there with you. We're, we, we may be this big fancy law firm, but this little group that you're working with, we understand what, what you're doing. We're doing the same thing. Now, you, you alluded to that you have a lot of music memorabilia on the wall. My mom always listened to music. She always had music going on, kind of classic rock, oldie stuff. But I wasn't this kind of hipster in middle school listening to, like, the coolest music. I was listening to pop music um, and then rock um, and then getting into Neil Young, Grateful Dead, Bob Dylan. So I've, I've always had that with me kind of way back in high school. And it's always been kind of a release for me. Um, listening to music, I got a lot going on in my head. And when I listen to music, I can kind of just focus on the music. And it became something that I analyzed more than technically enjoyed. But I actually enjoyed the analysis of, of music. So you interview a couple of my friends, they'll tell you I overthink everything. <laughs> but I even overthink kind of my hobbies and the things that I'm passionate about. Yeah, so... Do you play any instruments or are you a musician? I play the guitar a little bit, yeah. but... What is it about the, the music that you would analyze? Everything. Lyric probably started with lyrics. Started, yeah. You know, back then, you know, you could you could find the lyrics online, but mm -hmm. sometimes you had to write them down. College, I got into jazz a ton and tried to learn about that. That was a huge excursion. Kind of me and my one buddy just dove into jazz, and I started listening to time signatures. I started listening to instrumentation. Um, jazz was cool because you have to you kind of have to investigate through the liner notes who's playing what, what instruments are on here, and then you start to start to understand the players and, and, and jump from record to record. That was huge in kind of the analysis phase of, of me listening to music. But I was always, always a fan. I've never been until very, very recently kind of behind the scenes in, yeah. in music, always just kind of a fan going to shows, listening to music. Do you see any parallels between, you know, music and your analysis thereof and your interest in sort of M&A and just all these different pieces of business all working together. Is there, has there any, been any thought there? Yeah. I mean, it, I don't know about it, the M&A, but it, it's, it's certainly kind of the entrepreneurship right. angle, I think intersects with music. You know, it, I think musicians are entrepreneurs in a lot of respect. I mean, they're creative. Um, they have ideas and they're promoting them publicly. They're also trying to make a living uh, off of their the idea. So 
I definitely draw some you know, parallels between entrepreneurs and musicians, for sure. You've written and published two books analyzing music. Uh, the first one was about music in 1965, right? And, and the latest one released in May of, May of 18 was about 1968. So first off, why those years? Those years were important because they were kind of a sea change musically from, you know, really Bob Dylan at the Newport Folk Festival and, and kind of taking music from, you know, early rock and roll to what we know now as rock and roll and infusing substance in, into music. So, so I started kind of analyzing, you know, why, why that's the case. Um, I have one buddy that I, we, we call them projects and, and we are obsessed with the Grateful Dead. And, and what we do is, again, more analysis than anything. We're listening, we'll listen to every single show the Grateful Dead played in a given year. And we call it a project. So we call it, you know, the 1973 project. We listen to every single show the whole year and we take notes and correspond about it very casually. It's not like it's taxing on us. It's not a job. So we got to the year and we do it always on the anniversary. So we got to 2015. So in 2015, we were, we were forced to look at, well, what are we going to do? 65, 75, 85 or 95, because those are just the years. 65, there, there's nothing. The band was nascent, and there's hardly anything to listen to. 95, Jerry Garcia died. I'm not listening to that year. There's really not a lot to listen to. 75, just so happens, the band was on hiatus. There's, there's nothing in 75. And then 85 is just Grateful Dead in the mid-80s, and I'll get in trouble for saying I'm not a fan. But um, <laughs> So I'm not devoting a year of my life to listening to 1985 Grateful Dead. <laughs> So, so my buddy was like, well, I'm just going to do 85. And I said, well, this is where we, this is where we part ways, my friend. I'm wow. not doing 85. So I was like, maybe I'll just listen to, you know, a bunch of albums from 1965. So I started looking at all the albums released in 1965, and I was stunned with the breadth of albums that were released, not just the stuff I knew, but I mean, John Coltrane's major work, A Love Supreme. I mean, you could, there, there's so many examples of it. So I kind of formed this thesis that, not only was there such great music, but it went from bright Beach Boys, pop, the Beatles, kind of, I want to hold your hand. And then at the end of the year, Help was in the middle of that. And then at the end of the year, it's Rubber Soul, where it's like the Beatles, for example, are just psychedelic and dark. So I started examining what happened that these artists all changed from being bright and smiling and colorful to dark and psychedelic and, and pissed off. And it occurred to me that I should take a look at what's going on in the world. The Vietnam War was just starting. First bombing campaigns were, were in Vietnam in, in March of 1965. Selma and, and the race riots in, in Alabama were March of 1965. The Watts riots in, in LA were in um, August of 1965. And if you just kind of track the history and the music together, you start to see that the artists are incorporating the darkness from the history into their lyrics and the sound, even in jazz. So it, it just kind of unfolded where each chapter of the book is recounts the history that happened in a particular month. There's 12 chapters, 12 months, and then the album's released in that month, and then it just tracks them. How did you come to the conclusion? At what moment did you decide that this project was going to be an actual book? It started as a blog in 2015, and I was just kind of posting these online and friends were sharing it with friends and I just had like a little WordPress site and it just kind of grew and grew and grew and at the end of the year December people were just I couldn't believe how many people were reading this for me it was once I wrote it I was done with it like I wasn't editing it I was just 
I got it out of my system. And then at the end, you know, people were like, can I get a copy of the whole 12 months? And I started printing that out. And then I started looking at the early stuff. And I was like, I could definitely do that better. And I learned things. I learned themes in October, November, and December that I thought I could foreshadow in January, February, and March. And I, and I went back and I started listening to the music again because each chapter has a playlist, Spotify playlist, where you can track the music and listen to it as you go. And it just kind of occurred to me that this thing should be out there. And I've had a number of people saying, "This, you just got to get this out there. You got to get Amazon or someone to put it out there. So I just put it out as a book. I mean, I, I don't, I don't even check sales. It's not, it's just, I don't promote it at all. And, and this, this whole project, it was just curiosity. Well, I had to do a project because I'm always doing something with music. I'm always listening and analyzing and, and writing something. Just because you want to learn more about music. Yeah, if it's not a Grateful Dead year project, it's now these types of projects. You know, I, I, and then I did 1968, and I was really just mired in the history of 1968. Started in every waking downtime moment that I had. I was watching documentaries on MLK, RFK, Vietnam War, just, you know, the, the, the riots and unrest in Chicago for the Democratic Convention in August. I mean, I just got just so into the, the nexus of history and music. You know, talking about the Beatles again, in 1968, you have Magical Mystery Tour and Sgt. Pepper's, like two of the most colorful record sleeves you could, you could ever have. Um, and the music was psychedelic and bright. And then their record in November was the White Album, a white cover. And so I was just like, what, what is going on? It's not rocket science in the sense that it's very fitting of my kind of type A detailed Ballard kind of persona. I mean, I attacked, so it, it was it was fairly methodical. I think hopefully it reads a little more smooth, yeah. but it's a pretty methodical effort. I'm working on another writing project now, but I do have a bunch of notes on, you know, post-Trump type of lyrics and some reactions to that. I think there's some interesting things there that came out. And now, now the music industry is a little bit different because it actually takes longer to get music released by the big stars, yeah. The indie artists, you can get, you can throw stuff on Bandcamp and get it out right away. Yeah. But back in the 60s, it actually was a lot quicker. You could record, they mixed, they got it out and they promoted it behind it. It probably takes took three, four, five months to get music out. Now, if Drake has a new album that comes out, it's gonna take probably a year before that thing is recorded, yeah. mixed, and then the promotional campaign behind it, right? So the nexus and the, the thread between them is not always as, as pure as it, as it was. But yeah, I think if you look at the music in mid-2017, late 2017, I think you kind of see some, some angst from young people. I think if you also look at, I have a pages and pages of notes on um, 2002, records that are really somber. You have records by, you know, Beck, for example, Beck, upbeat kind of party kid. Yeah. He put out an album called Sea Change, which is it's just a treasure, but it's it's dark and it's somber. And that's right after that's I guess the time after nine eleven. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I, I think you you kind of see a little of that. There's a great book called Meet Me in the Bathroom, which is an oral history of you know New York in the early two thousands, and she talks about how some of the music in New York was actually dancey and upbeat, and people just we're making music purposely to be upbeat and kind of lose yourself in music, yeah. like LCD sound system, stuff like that. They were just kind of raging DJ upbeat as a direct reaction to 9-11. Super optimistic or super, you know, depressing. Right. So this year is going to be the third year of the Philly Music Fest. Can you describe the Philly music scene 
when you started to think about Philly Music Fest, when you started to, this idea started to cook? The Philly music scene was um, more disparate. It was provincial in terms of neighborhoods. And now I'm, I'm dating back probably five years yeah. from now. And it was just starting to coalesce behind some successful bands. We were always championing the bands that kind of came out and made it. Dr. Dog broke out. Kurt Vile was breaking out. I always thought that our scene cherished the breakout more than the emerging bands that we had. So the idea for Philly Music Fest was traveling to music cities. I love Austin. I go down there for South By every year. Um, I love Nashville. Seattle's got a great music scene. Boston's got a great music scene. And once I started the emerging growth practice, the startup practice at Ballard, it kind of got me thinking about entrepreneurship in music, entrepreneurship in business. I have this thesis that I have not done much with other than maybe talking about on your podcast, which is this triangulation of the music scene, the entrepreneur and tech scene, and the food and beverage scene in, in a community. So five years ago, I kind of was doing, starting to do a lot of this emerging growth and startup and tech work for great companies that are breaking out now. I also have always kind of had my hand in the food and beverage scene. Um, I do work for Cook and Solo, Zahav and that group, Val and Marcy on 13th Street. I do work with De Bruno. So I kind of had my hand in, in the Philly food scene a bit just from experience and doing some restaurant deals. And the entrepreneurship in Philly was blowing up. So it kind of occurred to me, like, we have the music attributes here. We got to complete this triangle. We have this triangulation. There's something there in these other cities where these three spokes are connected. So that was pretty much the genesis for Philly Music Fest to say, we need to come together as Philadelphians to support the Philly music scene and not just support the success stories that are exported out of Philly. So I pitched an idea to um, sit on the board of the Man Music Center, pitched it to them, some people over there. I pitched it to Hal Real, who owns World Cafe Live, and Bruce Warren over at XPN. And I said, this is my idea. I want to have a two-day music festival. I don't want it to be a big outdoor kind of sprawling, sunny music festival. I want it to be indoors to celebrate kind of our club scene. Um, and they said, good, yeah, we, we, we would love to do that. I said, well, there's another catch. All of the bands are going to be from Philly. And there was kind of some silence. It was like, do we have enough? One of the, do we have enough bands to do that? Are we going to 24 bands? You're going to have 24 Philly bands. I said, yeah, we're going to have 24 Philly bands. I mean, I go and see them every couple of weeks. We have them. We just got to put them on stage together and kind of promote them. And, you know, there wasn't a ton of buy-in at first, but it came together. We did it in 2017. We got a headliner of Strand of Oaks, and then we packed it in with a bunch of emerging artists. You know, that was kind of our beta. And uh, year two in 2018, we expanded it to four nights um, and sold out every night, all full new slate of Philly bands. So 2019 is announced now, and we're kind of putting it together. Yeah. You mentioned how you've always had the entrepreneurial spirit, but a lot of the stuff that you did was entrepreneurial, right? So would you say that this was your first experience doing something truly entrepreneurial? I'd hesitate to fully call myself an entrepreneur like some of the amazing people I represent. I do remember the first time I kind of felt like I was on the inside and didn't want to be. We were at the Newport Folk Festival and Levon Helm was, was headlining, who's the drummer for the band. And I was sitting right on the side of the stage next to Jay. And um, Newport has this thing where they always end the festival with a big sing-along, basically the headliner's best song, most famous song. They'll bring everyone that played on stage and, and they all sing, right? So the wait has these very distinct verses 
that people cherish, like, you know, different band members sing them. So I'm sitting there and, and I look over and, and Jim James, Glenn Hansard and Richie Havens, this other guy from the Felice Brothers, were, they're all huddling up. And I was, you know, just being the, really the first time I was backstage, I'm looking over like, what's going on over there? And Jay goes over and it looked like an argument, you know, looked like an argument. So I was like, kind of had one eye on that, kind of watching Levon, kind of trying to act like I've been there before. And I got a little closer and I hear them fighting about which person is going to sing the crazy Chester verse of The Weight. And, you know, it's supposed to be such a community-spirited sing-along and, and, and fans would eat it up. But backstage, there was like this, this difference, this difference of vibe. And I just remember, I guess the person that said this will remain nameless, but one of those people that I mentioned said, you know, I have to sing the crazy Chester verse. That is my verse. And um, it all got worked out. Jay came over. They went on stage. They're singing the weight. And I was like, what was going on with that? He's like, you know, you, you might not want to be back here. You might want to be out there. There's yeah. some there's some bad crap that goes on back there. And I was just like, yeah, they're fighting about the crazy Chester verse. Like, that's his verse? No, it's Rick Danko's yeah. verse. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not his verse. Yeah. Um, but, but that was kind of the first time I was kind of like in it. Um, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot, not with that experience, but I learned a lot by being around Newport for, for 10 years. Newport's a nonprofit festival. It's very community spirited. And I've borrowed a lot of that with Philly Music Fest and, you know, made it all about, you know, the artist, basically. Yeah. During year one, was there a moment, I mean, you had to have been a little bit nervous before throwing your first festival when the dates started to come up, right? Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the beauties about Philly Music Fest for me, not being in, you know, the music world, I've been in the, mu the business of music world a little bit, but by doing small club shows and building Philly Music Fest through independent small venues, Johnny Brenda's Milk Boy and World Cafe Live, not AEG, not Live Nation, specifically at independent venues. I've been able to kind of outsource a lot of the anxieties of the festival. Sure, I got to sell tickets and I got to make money so I can donate it to charity. But, you know, these venues, they're all over the production. They're all over the lighting. They're all over artists, what food the artists want. I mean, I kind of outsource all of that to them. So the anxieties that I had were purely, I just want people to be there and experience it. And I want the financials to work out so that we can donate money to charity. Yeah. There's also the, the fact that you're supporting these independent venues as well. Yeah, that's the third prong of the mission. I mean, the, the first is we need to generate proceeds for music education. So if we want a good music infrastructure in Philly, you know, the venues are popping up, recording studios are popping up, labels are popping up. Let's educate kids so that when they become older, they're ingrained in a music society in Philadelphia because the Philadelphia schools are cutting music education. So we kind of are plugging that gap. So that's our that's our first mission and that's where the proceeds go. The second is supporting the local musicians. And then the third mission, as you said, Kevin, is supporting independent venues. You know, the truck just closed. You know, they're really kind of a dying breed and, and we need these venues to be able to program whatever they want. If they want to program Latin jazz on a Saturday night because they think it's smart and they think it's a good show, we need them to be able to do it. We yeah. can't have Live Nation saying, no, I'm sorry, we're, we're routing an artist through your venue. You're going to put them on your stage. Were there any surprise lessons year one? Don't freak out about ticket sales until August. I mean, we, we announce in May and we do that because we try to get on people's radar screens, particularly students that are leaving uh, before they leave for, for summer break. I was pretty anxious in July and August, and you know, but nobody's really around buying anything. 
Um, it ended up working out great, but I think it was just be patient. Yeah. Be patient. Same yeah. thing. Friday before the Wednesday live show, I'm like, nobody's coming. Jeff's like, relax. They're going to buy the tickets on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. The, the James Beard thing helped you probably. It sure. Well, yeah. You know, we've done a great job of aggregating different yeah. genres. We program indie rock. The programming um, thesis is we're going to put on whatever we see in the community. So I talk to a lot of people because I'm not in every single music community in the in the city. So if you look at Philadelphia's, you know, complexion, if you will, you have hip hop, indie rock. You actually have a dominant female indie rock, very, very strong. You have some country and bluegrass, a little bit of jazz, probably more than some other cities, and then you have a little bit of pop. So what we do is we try to reflect that. We just try to be reflective of the communities that we see in, in Philly. Yeah, cool. Last year, as a part of the Philly Music Fest, I attended the Tech Tour, which was a bunch of performances at local startups, and those performances followed panel discussions, that sort of thing. So a couple questions there. First off, is the inspiration for that, that sort of triangle that you were discussing, where you see you know, entrepreneurs, musicians, and the food scene all kind of working together? Why bring the tech scene into the Philly Music Festival? It's purely out of that thesis. But the vision of tech tour and connecting that one side of the triangle was always there. So I, I got together with Rick Nucci, Dave Silver, and Tracy Wilson Rossman um, from Chariot. And I was pitched it to them. I said, this is what I want to do. And they, they were just like, we're doing this. We have to do this. And I said, I'm going to need your help because I got my hands full with a day job and some other things. It was a success, but it was still a beta. So this year, we're, we're going to roll that out. We're going to continue it. And the idea is, is pretty simple. You know, the communities of the tech and startup world, uh, I, just, I don't want to limit it just tech. It is called Tech Tour, but it's really entrepreneurship yeah. in Philly in general. That community and the music community and food and beverage. So, and I think it's fairly simple if you look at the workforce and you look at the overlap between the workforce of musicians and startup and culture the employee base of a lot of startup and entrepreneurs are musicians. Why are they working at startup and startup companies? They're working there because it's flexible. They can work from home. They just need to get their job done. They can work on their own hours, just get the job done. That's the type of culture in, in a startup. There's also um, an acceptance of diversity. You know, we don't care if you shave. We don't care if you have long hair. We don't care if you have tattoos. We don't care what you wear, and we don't care if your dog's here. Just get the work done. That's a place where musicians thrive. And so musicians, to have a robust, lively music scene in a city, you need those jobs. You need the people that are trying to live and pay rent to be able to have those jobs. Now, what's the other place that those people always, musicians, look to, to work at? Bars and restaurants. You need a strong restaurant scene. We've always had that. And now that we have the tech scene lining up with that, now you have jobs that musicians and artists and designers can hold down and still pursue their creative attributes at night on weekends. A lot of these musicians, they got to go on tour. So they'll go on a three-week tour. I mean, I don't know about your job, but I can't just go away for three weeks and then come back. But if you work at a restaurant, you just, you don't take shifts for three weeks. You get a pass or you say to your startup boss, hey, I got to go on tour for three weeks. I'll still write code. I'll still do what I need to do. And they're usually cool with it. So um, they're really, really symbiotic, the way that all of those work. Philly Music Fest 2029, what do you want to see? I want to keep it at five venues, six venues. I love it to culminate at the man. But ultimately, I want to generate proceeds to donate. I want to generate $100,000 of proceeds every year to donate to music education charities. I want our bands that we had 
on a small stage in, in 2018 and 19 to now be headlining shows all around the country. But Philly Music Fest is really just the vehicle. It's all intersected. I mean, all the beer, all the food at Philly Music Fest is Philly. Craft brew, craft food, Federal Donuts, De Bruno's, they're all kind of pitching in. So it's, so it's really kind of connecting the dots and, and giving people opportunity. Yeah, wow. So I have a couple questions that I ask every guest just to get different perspectives. What is a common misconception about you? People just think I'm always pissed off. You know, I'm, I'm wearing dark sunglasses. I'm kind of standing around. But, you know, I think most people would tell you I'm, I'm very rarely pissed off. I'm usually pretty happy. There are times where I'm just thinking about everything. I'm overthinking what type of tea I'm going to have um, when I'm asked to have tea. Can I ask about your eyes? Sure. Not many people know this about Greg, but he has an eye condition that leaves him really nearsighted. It's unique in that corrective lenses don't fully work, so he doesn't have day-to-day perfect vision like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, they don't, they don't know a heck of a lot about it, so it, it steadily declines and then it steadily plateaus. But whether I ignore it or, you know, think about it all the time, it's, it's not going to change and it's something that I just kind of move on. It, it, it's been a blessing that I, I've, my passions utilize my ears more, more than my eyes. It dramatically affects my social life and only bleeds into my professional life in networking, meeting with people, um, you know, flagging you down when, when we met in the lobby for this. Mm-hmm. I couldn't see you and things like that. Um, passing people on the street, people not knowing that you see them. Um, that social interaction in the professional context is really the only time it comes in. Professionally, it's been a blessing because without knowing that I had was picking this profession, I picked a profession that is not bothered at all by the eye condition. Mm-hmm. So um, you would think, well, a lawyer needs to be able to see. Well, I could see perfectly close up. I just can't see far away. Um, and, you know, with modern technology of larger font sizes, um, you know, dictation and things like that, it's it's actually been, you know, you wouldn't, I don't think about it a minute when, yeah. I'm, when I'm doing legal work. Um, it's literally just kind of walking around on the street, um, not driving, things yeah. like that. And I mean, it's also been a blessing on the train. So um, I'm a big time management guy in lists, so um, 20, 25 minutes on the train in the morning, mm-hmm. 20, 25 minutes at night, it's basically when I wrote both of those books. Wow. Um, I don't do any work on the train. That's a steadfast rule. Um, and again, I don't drive, so I'm on the train a lot, yeah. and I'm walking around with headphones in a lot. So if you add up all those minutes, you know, some people say, how do you get this done? It's like, well, you know, all this Game of Thrones stuff you're talking about, I don't even know what, what channel that's on, <laughs> number one. Number two... Um, you know, I don't drive and, mm. you know, I have a, I don't do any Ballard work on that train. I devote it to Philly Music Fest and I devote it to um, writing projects, period. Right. It almost sounds like it could be an advantage because yeah. I, I think I've heard, either heard podcasts or, or just read about how um, surprisingly large percentage of successful CEOs are dyslexic hmm. because of the extra work that they have to put in to reading there's just uh, either a higher level of comprehension or, or, or focus or whatever it is. I don't, I don't recall. It's been years, but um, it reminds me of that. I, I wonder, have you heard of that? I haven't heard of that, but um, it has not gone unnoticed by some people that are close to me that, that are, you know, when are, when are you going to stop? You're doing so much. When do you sleep? Um, and it has not gone unnoticed that, you know, i got to get shit done now because, yeah. you know, I may not be able to see at some point. So I got some years here where I see perfectly fine. The only limitation is really I can't see people on the street and I can't drive cars, but um, 
I got to get shit done now. Yeah. So that that's kind of been a driving force. If you if you boil that down, your question is kind of, you know, is it motivating? Yeah. Is it does it fuel ambition? I think it it probably does. But there's a sense of, there, I always have a sense of urgency. Yeah. You know, and 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 maybe it's fueled by that, maybe not. But I got to tell you, it's it's the vision thing is is never in the forefront mm-hmm. of my mind. I mean, my life is calibrated around it. Mm. Um, and luckily, as I said, in the profession of law. I don't even think about it during the day, um, and I don't think about it when I'm yeah. in the city. So it's. It sounds like the, it's a positive motivation rather than because to me I would I would feel scared like almost scared like oh no this is I mean it's all, it's good we're all gonna die so like yeah. <laughs> we all should have that sort yeah. of motivation. And look, I, I did the scared thing. Yeah, I did the scared thing at one point, yeah. but um now I'm a, now I'm into the get shit done. Yeah. Thing. Yeah, and and sort of savor it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Cool. If you could send one message to yourself in the past, at any point, butterfly effect aside, where would you send it? At what point in time? And what would you say? I would probably urge myself to be myself a bit earlier in my life. It wasn't until late professional career at Ballard where I was able to kind of exist in my own passions and and attributes. Um, You know, I was always just trying to, you know, I was wearing a suit. I was shaving every day. I was just trying to, you know, generally conceal that I was into things like music and but when I started being myself a little bit more at work maybe because I thought I could you know experience wise the things I was accomplishing at work I was more successful I was more successful at work and it was more successful in life when I started kind of just yeah what do you think is the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today we need to change the taxing policy we have a tax structure that prohibits um the influx of business holds down the lower class. We need to promote businesses and the economy of Philadelphia. We've seen that in the last couple of years where businesses are coming in, there's jobs created, there's income taxes that are legitimate taxes that are generated by businesses here that flow to the people that need it the most. So we have a decades old tax structure here in Philly that needs to be addressed. On the flip side, what, what excites you most about Philadelphia today? I think there's a real energy among young people in Philadelphia that I have not seen growing up in this city. There just seems to be an underlying passion and interest um, that seems to lack self-interest, which is refreshing. So I think, you know, when you look at people in the age ranges of 30 to 50, we have a really solid group of leaders in the city that I think will, in the next 10 or 20 years, be able to make some change. Yeah. We need to listen to each other. We, we have a culture in the city where it's democratic by name, but I don't see a whole lot of productive discussion. There's divisiveness that is permeating from federal government down to our government. And what we need to do is accept that people have different opinions. We need to listen to them. And then we need to compromise. And I think if Philadelphia does that, uh, I think we'll be in a better place going forward. The Philly Music Fest lineup has dropped and tickets are on sale for the three-day celebration in September. Check out the show notes to snag tickets or to learn more about Greg. If you like the show, of course, be sure you're subscribed. Leave us a rating and follow along on Twitter and Instagram at PodPhillyWho. Philly Who is a Q9 production. This episode is produced and hosted by me with associate production and editing by Angela Gervasi, editing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, artwork by Lauren Carhart, and special thanks to Kimberly Clayman and John Wright. 
For Philly Who, my name is Kevin Schmidlin. Till next time.